Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. There's a lot that happens in 5.3. Yes, there is. Which is why I couldn't find that moment at first. Because I... And in the R notes, 5.2. Oh, weird. So... Textual instability. I mean, the whole... Because the only text we have of this is folio. Right. And it's all... The whole thing is just batshit. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um. Okay, so 5-2 after Joan. Enter Suffolk with Margaret in his hand. Tiny little Margaret. Yep. His hand. <laughs> She's Thumbelina. Most people don't know that. <laughs> She's portable. Pocket size. <laughs> Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week we're revisiting, of all things, <laughs> Henry the Sixth, Part One, aka One Henry Six. Why? Because the world is round. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so here's the part where we usually say that, like, it's a 201 episode, so we assume that you have a familiarity with the play, so we're not giving you a synopsis. But it's 1 Henry 6, so, like, no one has a familiarity. <laughs> um, but we're still not going to give it to you, so we no. have we have a, a 101 episode in our back catalog. You can go listen to that if you need to. Um, I did, at least in my part of the stuff, I signposted a little bit for you. Um, <laughs> Good. Because I was like, I was, yeah. Uh, and it's also, I think, been like literal years since we did this 101 episode. It has. We Yeah, because we like embarked on the Henrys, I think, in season one, like all oh, of the yeah. Henrys. I don't think we did all of I certainly would not have stood for all of the Henrys in a no, single right, season. Um, Some of the Henrys. Yeah. But this is the one that I loved. So I would have been like, let's get the let out and do this play. Sure. Anyway, um, it's a 201 level episode. So we go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. Today, we are talking about historical Joan of Arc and... And audience contact. What up? Ooh, yeah. Um, but first, we're gonna dish out some happy during our happy hour. <laughs> it's a cocktail of stuff that makes us happy. We're in this, so happy this week. <laughs> we're so happy this week. <sighs> we're happy about all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, inclusivity and decolonization and blah, 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 blah puppies and whatever. But <laughs> but also, <laughs> those are very important things. I don't mean to make light of those things. But also, the fucking election and, like, my relief, mm. just just my relief at Yeah, so for, for our listeners, um, since they have to wait a little bit, and so this is old news to them, uh, yeah. today is November the 8th. We found out yesterday <laughs> that yeah. Yeah. we won. Um, yeah. So, and also, like, if you are surprised to learn that Aubrey and I are Democrats, where have you been? Is it your first really day? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we are, we are still reveling in it. We are feeling fucking happy and relieved girl i slept so good last night 
Yeah. My jaw's unclenched. <laughs> There's no tension in my chest for the first time in like four years. Oh, God. And I mean, I know we're not out of the woods no. and like. Fight's not over. I do know, you know, I, I do like pepper my happiness with a little bit of reality, you yeah. know. And I know that the work is not over, that it's barely started, but like, oh my God, just, yeah, I, I'm feeling hopeful for the first time in four years. Yeah. We going to keep our rights. <laughs> Probably. Some of them. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think I'll be able to retain bodily autonomy, which is just the tits. <laughs> Great choice of words there. Um, I am. Literally, body, but get it, body, because yes, mastered my letters. It's not not my first radio. Yeah, yeah, that was on purpose. Yeah. So, in case you haven't gathered, the happy hour is is a time where we just recommend or talk about some stuff that just isn't terrible. So, like election aside, and like Kamala Harris in a white pantsuit, (gasps) iconic level of iconic aside. God, I was crying. I was. Uh, but. Other things that are not terrible that I want to recommend, um, we'll always recommend a couple of things. Um, I would like to recommend an oldie but a goodie, Games for Actors and Non-Actors by Augusto Boal, um, translated by somebody else because it was written originally in Portuguese. I'm very responsible with my bibliography right now. Um, but but uh, Augusto Boal, in case you don't know, is the uh, creator and founder of the Theater of the Oppressed, which is more of like a system of approaches to theater rather than like one single thing. Um, But his book games for actors and non-actors is exactly what it sounds like. It is ways into basically just expressing yourself. Um, And it saved my butt this week because I was, or this past week, I should say, because I was tasked. I've been working for a couple months now on making some like diversity, equity and inclusion curriculum for ASC. Um, and the, basically the only place to turn was, was Augusto Boal for me. And fortunately for me, my whole thesis was about the marriage of Shakespeare and Augusto Boal, Theater of the Oppressed. So I had lots of stuff to build on, but, um, it's just a great Shakespeare and Boal just like kiss already. Just like, I know, right. They should just make out already. They should. They should. They're getting married. I think if Augusto Boal had had his way, they totally would have because he was obsessed with Shakespeare. (gasps) Yes. He was. He was really, really, particularly Hamlet. Um, well, but anyway, I mean. that's a whole different rabbit hole that we don't need to go down. But um, it's a great resource. Games for actors and non-actors. So I'm just throwing that out there for folks who want some, you know, anti-racist pedagogy, basically. Yeah. Actually, anti-oppression pedagogy, any kind of oppression, not just racism. But that's what I got. What you got, well, Jess? I've got three. Um, I've got I've got anti-racist pedagogy. I've got fluff, and then I've got political action. Uh, Fantastic. So so let's let's get to getting. So we're gonna link this for you on the episode landing page on our website. Yes. Um, Brandy C. Williams, who is a first year PhD student at the University of Chicago. I just wanna I wanna emphasize to you that she is a first year PhD student. And this is fucking amazing what she's done. Okay. She has put together a syllabus, like a 10-week syllabus on teaching Shakespeare and race, or as we call it in the biz, shake race. Like, she built you an entire fucking class. And if you just want to, like, read all of the shit that she recommends, you can do that. But also just, like, here's a class that you can adapt to fit your own syllabus in whatever way. It's 
and it, she put it on the internet for fucking free. It's amazing. It's amazing. She's amazing. She's also uh, a young woman of color, which I feel like is also important to mention. It is thorough and it is delicious. So like get to getting. So that's awesome. That is awesome. Thing number two that I want to recommend is Pure Fluff. It is a book that I read in one sitting uh, on, I think, Friday um, called (laughs) Royal Holiday by Jasmine Guillory. And the the premise of the book is this middle-aged black woman uh, goes to England for Christmas with her daughter, who is going to be like the stylist to... Meghan Markle without saying explicitly Meghan Markle. She's just referred to as the Duchess. And then she falls in love with the Queen's private secretary who is just a tall piece of Hershey's chocolate. Mm. And it's just and it's just it's a whirlwind Christmassy romance fluff but with people of color and also middle-aged people fucking you love to see it and there's it's not aggressive about it but it is like you know there there there's some reflections of well you know i'm 55 and the last time a man saw me naked i would things were a little higher and tighter and i'm having some anxiety (laughs) about that but also i'm a lady with needs and i'm gonna get mine and it's just Magnificent, And I read it and then I emailed my local independent bookstore and I was like, can you please order for me everything else this woman has ever written? (laughs) So the rest of them are coming and I'm going to read them. Is it a series or is it she just writes generally in like the romance genre? Yeah, it's they're one offs and it's all it's all rom coms. And I think most of them are are stories about people of color if not all of them is she a woman of color as well believe she is i would hope so writing stories about them great um so that is my fluff and then there's some political action because we can still flip the senate is what we can still do because both of the senate races in georgia are having runoffs so You can donate to the campaigns or you can volunteer for their campaigns. Even if you don't live in Georgia, you don't need to be a Georgia voter to help out with these campaigns. Um, So we'll throw their campaign websites up as well. But it's warnockforgeorgia.com and electjohn.com. And that's J-O-N like Jonathan. We can we can continue to win. You know, we we did have some hard losses this week. You know, we didn't we didn't get everything, um, but we also had some major, major victories, which are really exciting. Um, Mm -hmm. And we can continue to have major victories if we all help out for Georgia. Yes. Indeed, law. That's what I have to say. So anyway, let's get into, you know, like Shakespeare or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, We have not done this in a while. In (laughs) a long ass time. Yeah, uh, we, I think, forgot, skipped, deliberately omitted. I don't remember. But for our our, la- our 201 Cymbeline, we did not do this. I also forgot we talked about that. And I, co- I, you know, I copy pasted this from I forget what. So, but it wasn't the Cymbeline. Anyway, um, sometimes it, when we're not all rhetoric'd out and when we forget we've had conversations, um, <laughs> we will revisit a rhetorical device of the week. So in our 101 episodes, we discuss different rhetorical devices and give examples of them at a pretty basic level. At the 201 level, um, we will revisit one that we already talked about in a 101 and discuss uses or possible characterizations of that device 
in performance in the particular play we're talking about. This week, I decided to revisit anaphora, which is the repetition of beginnings. So it's a pretty simple, but also really common device. Politicians use it a lot. You've been besieged by anaphora this year and a lot last year um, with all these campaign speeches. Um, but that is, it's so common because our ears love repetition. This type of repetition often serves to highlight the contrast of the words that are not repeated in the sentence. So like when you're, in other words, to use it, when you hit those repetitions really hard, you actually end up amplifying the singular phrases. It's kind of weird. It's a weird phenomenon how that works. I will try to explain. So I have two examples. Uh, first one is in Act 1, Scene 1 of 1 Henry 6. We've got Gloucester. He's uh, waxing poetical about Henry V, who has died. Uh, he says, His brandished sword did blind men with his beams. His arms spread wider than a dragon's wings. His sparkling eyes, replete with wrathful fire, more dazzled and drove back his enemies than midday sun, fierce bent against their faces. So the his, 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 right? His brandished sword, his arms spread wide, his sparkling eyes, right? Um, pretty basic one. Um, Jess, would you take the second one? Would you like to read Warwick? I would love to. Are you shitting? Yes. I'm not shitting you at all. Um, this is from uh, the second example is from Act Two, Scene Four, the famous rose plucking scene mm. uh, in the that starts the whole War of the Roses. But this is Warwick talking about. I forget what exactly he's talking about. It's just happening in that scene. So go for it. Uh, Somerset says, "Judge you, my lord of Warwick, then between us." So they're they're fighting, and then Somerset's like, "Hey, Warwick, why don't you judge?" And Warwick says, "Between two hawks, which flies the higher pitch; between two dogs, which hath the deeper mouth; between two blades, which bears the better temper; between two horses, which doth bear him best; between two girls, which hath the merriest eye. I have perhaps some shallow spirit of judgment, but in these nice sharp quillets of the law." Good faith, I am no wiser than a daw. There's also some icicle happening there. Definitely, yes. Thank you. And actually, we have some double anaphora happening, too, between these uh, phrases, right? Or in these clauses. Um, between two blank, comma, which, blah, 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 comma, right? Uh, so, yeah, some really, really layered, as you said, uh, layered rhetoric. Um, but that's just an example a few a few examples that you will actually kind of find all over this play, all over lots of plays, but all over this play, particularly since this one was somewhat written by Marlowe and that mighty line. You'll see you'll see a lot of this, a lot of this anaphora in the mighty line. So that is a brief review of the anaphora. Huzzah! I am sure that we talked about the authorship in our 101 episode. We did. We did. And we also had a, when we talked about the new Oxford coming out, we talked about some of the attribution that they did in that edition. So I think we've covered that. We have. It's been covered. And if people don't know, now you know. Yeah. Yet again, I hearken back to the documentary Shakespeare in Love, where Shakespeare laments Marlowe's death. And he says, my Henry VI was a house built on his foundation. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, that is actor memorial reconstruction. (laughs) This is a live reenactment of the documentary. You're welcome. I Um, I covered I covered all the authorship in Henry one, Henry six, part one, one oh one. Go find it if you need it. Um, Okay, so I am going to talk to you today about Joan of Arc, the Madonna whore complex, textual variants and my own damn feelings. In that order? 
yes. Good. Although my own damn feelings is pretty muddled in with sure. Madonna whore and textual variants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. For the record, I also was going to talk about this exact thing. And when I opened up this outline, I was like, <gasps> that bitch. But also, this is really good. So, like, somebody needed to say it. You're welcome. This yeah. is why I prepare. Took my ideas. Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Or Friday, maybe, is when I started prepping that. I was like, I gotta get in, because I'm sure Aubrey's gonna want to talk about it. Well, I do want to talk about Joan. I'm glad you're talking about Joan, because she was my confirmation saint, and I just, I feel an affinity for the lady. I probably would have picked her if I'd gotten confirmed, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I felt a very strong affinity for Joan of Arc, surprising literally no one who knows me. You are a buxom warrior, as she was. Yep. Yeah. On my horse, speaking French. <laughs> Summoning Girl, demons. I know you. I've I've spent time with you. I know. I know all about it. <laughs> Take it away. So I'm going to talk about uh, the historical Joan. She is a Catholic saint. She was canonized in 1920 by Pope Benedict XV. In history, she was born to farmers in northeastern France around 1412. I always think of her as being much, much earlier, but she is just like super late medieval, which is nice to remember. Uh, She began having visions around the time she was 13-ish and finally convinced a family member to take her to the Dauphin when she was 17. Also, get used to my horrible French throughout. Um, It's just fun to make fun of the French. Yeah, I know. It really is. Uh, So her first meeting with the Dauphin, uh, who was named Charles, took place in 1429. Some historians uh, believe that she was able to join the French army because Charles and other French officials saw her as their last hope to save a collapsing regime. The conflict that we are talking about here is the Hundred Years' War between France and England. There are a bunch of other territories involved as well, but for right now, we only care about France and England because they're the only ones in the play. Um, If you want to know who else was involved... The internet exists. <laughs> what? I know. So weird, right? Portugal, yeah. I think, was involved and Scotland and some other. They would be those Portuguese. I'll just extend my <laughs> taking the piss to every country in Europe. Yep. Um, So when Joan joined up, she turned the conflict into a religious war instead of a war over territory, which is very interesting um, because it was like this is the end of the Hundred Years War, which had been going on for, you know, a hundred years. It's right there in the Mm -hmm. name. And it had been, you know mostly like territorial and now it becomes about religion. Charles and his advisors did a background check on her and they had her theology examined in order to protect Charles from his enemies labeling Joan a heretic or a sorceress and saying that his crown Mm. was part of a bargain with the devil. Like Mm. he was like I can see that this could happen so I'm gonna go out of my way to make sure it doesn't happen. Foreshadowing. Right? Then Then it just went ahead and did happen totally happened which sucks yeah um so in april 1429 there was uh, a commission of of inquiry into her and her you know theology and and so on and it declared her to be quote of irreproachable life a good christian possessed of the virtues of humility honesty and simplicity mm. it's a nice thing to say about someone Sure. Um, Her first test in battle was to see if she could end the siege of Orléans. Uh Orléans. (laughs) Or, you know, Orleans, if you're anglophilic. But, you know, Orléans. Um, She claimed that she could, and so 
this is this is what's happening. Shakespeare and Marlowe in the play dramatize this at the end of Act One. Uh, in history, it's unclear how much Joan actually played an active part in ending the siege, but it is true that her arrival in Orléans coincided with a change in French strategy and the end of the siege. So correlation causation who can say um french military officials after this began including joan in strategy meetings and listening to her input more she participated in at least three more major battles and four more sieges including one on paris over the next several months so remember she met charles in april 1429 at the end of december that same year charles ennobled her family and her for her services to France. So in what, eight months, she she goes from daughter of shepherds to like nobility. Isn't that great? She was getting it done. She was. And then the tide began to turn. So at the middle end of May 1430, the next year, Joan was captured by Burgundian troops at Compagne. I I don't know about this. I think it's Compiègne. Compiègne. Ah, yeah, that makes more sense. Compiègne. Which is, it's in northeastern France. She was captured in northeastern France by Burgundian troops. Shakespeare and Marlowe rewrite this bit in Act 5. They have Joan summon fiends to help France save the day, but then the fiends desert her and the Duke of York captures Joan. That's what happens in the play. Um, Historically, that is not what happens. (laughs) Joan was captured, then she made several attempts to escape, but they all failed. Um, And she was tried for heresy to, I'm sure, the chagrin of Charles, who had hoped to avoid this. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was tried for heresy by a tribunal of English and Burgundian officials, but the outcome was preconceived. This was a kangaroo court. England and their allies wanted to get rid of Joan in a way that would cause the maximum amount of embarrassment to France. And so trying France's religious heroine as a heretic is the way to do it. Um, So the trial began in January 1431. So not even two full years after Joan meets Charles for the first time. She is now on trial as a heretic. Um, And this tribunal violated a number of laws, both secular and ecclesiastical, with the way that they conducted themselves. Uh, First, they denied Joan a legal advisor, which was soups illegal. They stacked the tribunal with pro-English clergy, and also they used threats to control those who spoke out against these injustices. Uh, It was not great, not great. Joan, however, defended herself very, very well. One of the most famous exchanges of her trial is this, quote, asked if she knew she was in God's grace, she answered, if I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in his grace. The question is a scholarly trap because church doctrine said that no one could be certain of being in God's grace. So if she'd answered yes, then she would have been charged with heresy. But if she'd answered no, then she would have confessed her own guilt, right? So this sort of middle ground answer, this perfect, perfect answer uh, stumps everybody. So the She equivocated. She sure did. Um, The court notary later testified that at the moment the court heard her reply, quote, those who were interrogating her were stupefied. Which like, big ups to Joan. Right? So heresy was a capital crime only for repeat offenses, which is a thing that I have questions about, but whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a law scholar. Uh, so the court couldn't make that stick. They couldn't make the repeat offense stick. So instead, they turned to charges of cross-dressing, which also was a capital crime. Right, because she dressed as a boy in, or she had dressed in men's clothes during battle and wore armor and all that. Yeah, so while Joan was in prison, um, and also before, she was wearing soldier's clothing because the way the men's clothing was constructed meant that she could tie her tops and her bottoms together, thereby um, giving her some protection against people who might want to remove her clothes and assault her. This was the same attire, you know, that she'd worn while the French while with the French army and her captors had given her dresses to wear, but she was like, nah, son, I'm going to keep this very slim protection I have by being able to tie my clothes together. I'm going to keep my pants tied to my shirt. Thank you. (laughs) Sure am. So the tribunal found her guilty and they sentenced her to death. She was burned at the stake on May 30th, 1431. Then her body was burned twice more and her ashes were scattered in the sand. The Seine? Just the the Seine. The Seine. The (laughs) Seine. They were scattered (laughs) in the river uh, to prevent her supporters from taking relics of her body. Um, Shakespeare and Marlowe dramatize her capture and her death in Act 5. She denies her shepherd father. She claims to be a virgin to save herself from burning. Then she claims to be pregnant to save herself from burning. This is unsurprising from a pair of English playwrights dramatizing some English military triumphs. But, you know, uh, this labeling of Joan as a heretic and a follower of the devil and a liar and a hypocrite is some serious anti-French and anti-Catholic propaganda. Yeah. Like... Whoa. Um, So then there was a posthumous retrial that found Joan innocent in 1456. She was beatified by the Catholic Church in 1909 and canonized as a saint in 1920. For those of you not up on your Catholic terminology, like me, (laughs) thanks Google, uh, beatification is the first step towards sainthood and it allows for public veneration. So that is historical Joan. That's that's what we have got going on. There's also some like cool shit about like there's a ring that still exists that maybe Joan was wearing right before she was executed that they sold in 2016 to like a historical theme park, which like what? What? Yeah. <laughs> for like also not nearly as much money as I would have expected it to go for in 2016. Uh, wow. Anyway, it's this it's all very interesting, um, but that yeah. wasn't really relevant to what we were talking about here. So. So I just glossed over it. Anyway. Poor Joan. She gets a bad rap. So let's talk about the Madonna whore complex. And Do let's. The texts of this play. Are we ready for some righteous rage against the patriarchy? Because I am. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Uh, so the Madonna whore complex, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is one of those silly motherfucking legacies that Freud gave us, which just like, fuck off, Freud. Uh, Go back to your coke-fueled rantings, Freud. Get out of my Shakespeare, Freud. No one needs you here. Anyway, the Madonna Whore Complex says that men are unable to maintain sexual arousal within a committed relationship because they can only see women as either saintly Madonna figures or debased whores. They therefore (sighs) cannot desire women they respect and cannot respect women they desire. Which is some bullshit. Yeah. 
Uh, so one Henry six illustrates this by having the French see Joan as a Madonna and the English see Joan as a whore. Never mind uh, that in the play Joan's first meeting with Charles, he gets like the sexy feelings for Ooh, her, yeah, but then she's like, sexy. "No, I have to stay a virgin to keep yeah. my direct line to God." Um, for a pro English audience, this probably just serves to reinforce anti-French sentiment, right? All French men are libidinous. All French women are lascivious. Charles, you know, himself sees Joan as a sexual object from the outset. Maybe they actually did sleep together, even if Shakespeare and Marlowe didn't explicitly write it into their play. You know, maybe maybe the audience gets to make that decision for themselves. Wouldn't mm-hmm. it be? Yeah, it's anyway. If you've ever read the play, you may have noticed that Joan isn't actually called Joan of Arc in the text a whole bunch. In fact, she's rarely even called Joan. Um, She refers to herself twice as Joan of Arc and then often in her soliloquies refers to herself as Joan. But most other characters call her either Joan La Pucelle or just Pucelle. And here's the thing about that. Um, I did a quick census of all the editions of the play I own, and her speech heading in the folio and the Arden 3 is Puzel, P-U-Z-E-L. The New Oxford goes with fully Joan La Pucelle, and the Norton 3 uses Joan De Pucelle. Um, And that's like, that's the whole speech heading is all of those like two and a half names, Um, which is long for a speech heading, right? That's, that's long. So as the Arden editor points out, Pucel is French for virgin with Mm. very uh, specific youthful and innocent connotations, but Puzel with the Z, with the Z, uh, is English slang for whore. And it's sufficiently close enough in sound to pizzle, which is slang for penis. Uh-huh. Um, the Arden 3 was published 20 damn years ago, and I will be interested to see what choice the Arden 4 editor makes with regard to her speech heading. Um, I think I'd like to see someone use just Joan. I feel like that would be good. Yeah. Um, it seems curious to me that the more recent editions, you know, the Norton and the Oxford, use her full name as a speech heading, while older editions literally just choose the word that means whore i'm not or virgin depending on spelling yeah huh. yeah i none of the versions that i own go with just pusel that means virgin all of them if it's just a single it's p- puzzle Crazy. which means whore yeah um Crazy. and i'm not i'm not surprised by that in the folio uh the folio also uses dolphin for charles because <laughs> the french are stupid and let's call their prince a sea animal <laughs> Um, But it makes me just like a little itchy that the Arden made that choice as well. They do use dolphin for for Charles, and they also use the whore word for uh, for Joan. And the editor doesn't clearly explain his reasoning for his choice. But instead, he just kind of like lays out the different options and what can be learned from each. And then he picks Poozle, but doesn't even gesture to like, because of these reasons, I'm going with this or anything. And... It, I'm, I'm angry about it. Like, tell me why you're going with calling her a whore, please. I might have a, I might have an answer. It's not going to make you, it's in the folio. That's how it's printed in the folio. That's yes, it. Yes, but, but 
<laughs> here's here's here oh god but then again i mean it is pretty easy to just fall back on well it's in the folio yeah you know um, so like that's not an excuse i'm just thinking so like, here's here's what he says uh is this edition has adopted joan puzzle for the character's name from the alternatives offered by folio see the appendix blah blah, blah. i have decided not to use as other editions have Pucelle and dauphin these modernized forms would be in line with the general arden policy of modernization of all but proper names arguably Pucelle slash puzzle is a kind of proper name but my reason for adopting Puzel and dolphin is that they draw attention to the play as a satirical distortion of history particularly in relation to the french so i guess he does actually say why he chose these things um <laughs> but it's not it's not in the part <laughs> where yeah. he talks about the names which is why i had forgotten it until just now because it's in an appendix at the very fucking yeah. end and it's like way buried. Either way, I don't think it's cute. Like the dolphin issue doesn't bother me as much, probably because like fuck the patriarchy. But like you you literally chose to go with the word that means whore. You're calling her just whore. And you're not even allowing her to keep Joan as fucking speech heading. So meh. Anyway, uh, as much as I wish I were, I am not a textual scholar, so I can't really speak too much more about all of this, but I don't like this choice. I don't feel like it offers nuance. It feels to me like a, a condemnation. It feels like a misogynist choice. It feels like there were other things that could have been done that would yeah. have allowed for scholarly and performative opportunity yeah. and nuance and this shuts it down so yeah i mean this particular satirical reading that he claims he's giving it it dehumanizes yeah. right so and that's annoying and that's grating on us um yeah i completely completely understand that also thank you for sharing all of this because i had no idea of this particular variation and now I'm enraged. And if I didn't need this table so much, I'd be flipping it. I know, right? I was like, I really <laughs> wish I had a Folger edition. I really wish I had a new Mermaids. Like, I've never wished for multiple single text copies of One Henry Six, but now I do. Yeah. I want to know. That'll be a thing that I check every time I find a new edition now. Yeah. Like, every time I come across one. Yeah. And I, I knew that there was some variation in the name. Even before looking at what the Arden had to say, I knew I knew that it had it had gone a couple of different ways. But, yeah. Um, well, I mean, and even correcting the spell, correcting, quote unquote, the spelling to Pucel still labels her a virgin, which is like, it's still part of that dichotomy. It's still... Yeah, you're still Fucked calling up. her an object rather than right. a person. Defining her by her sexuality. Yeah, it's the yeah. same to me when when additions use the prefix Jew for Shylock instead of yeah. calling him Shylock, which um, a lot of additions still do, still in the yeah. year of our Lord 2020 Joe Biden's America, um, that still <laughs> still happens yeah. uh, a lot. I think... I think the the Arden three uses Jew instead of Shylock, and I understand why, because that's what the folio does. It's what right. it's what you know right. the trying to get back to original. But that doesn't make it a good choice, right? Yeah, didn't make it a good choice four hundred years ago either. No, so like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Her. yeah, like. Like, there would be fucking riots if someone tried to publish an edition of Othello where his speech prefix was more, right? Yeah. Like, we would not stand for that. So why do we stand for calling Joan a whore or a virgin? Why do we right. stand for just calling Shylock a Jew instead of using his actual fucking yeah. name, you know? Yeah. 
Anyway, <laughs> soapbox done. Rant. You want to go over. burn some shit down after this? I Let's fucking do. Joe Biden's America. <laughs> just, I've just been shouting that since yesterday. Um, have you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of have. Uh, why don't you okay. tell us about some shit and then. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Look. So I just want to point out a really golden moment of audience contact from this play. It is quite possibly one of the most exemplary examples um, from the entire canon, apart from maybe, uh, you know, Act 1, Scene 3 of The Merchant of Venice, which is also awesome with the Portia Nerissa. I just want to share with you all this moment and to encourage anyone who produces this play to not overlook it and to not waste it. Um, So in Act 5, Scene 3, um, sexy, sexy Suffolk, I don't know why I keep calling him that. I think it's mostly because the men I've seen play Suffolk have been stupid hot. It's because <laughs> of Patrick Earl. Yeah, it's Patrick Earl. So the ASC did One Henry Six back in 2016. Aubrey and yes. I both lived there. We both saw it. I saw the production yes. a lot. I saw it, I don't know, 20 times or something. Um, and there's a line in the end, at the, at the end of Act 5, where... Suffolk says, I am an Earl, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but he yep. was played by Patrick Earl. And so right. he would look at the audience and be like, I am an Earl. And every fucking night I just snorted and people would be like, I don't get it. What's funny? Why is that funny? Because like, his surname is Earl. It's an in-joke, <laughs> man. You got to know. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I, I love it. I love it. Um, but anyway, Suffolk has has been sent to pick up Margaret for Henry, for King Henry VI, to bring her back as his bride. Suffolk predictably falls in love with her himself, despite the fact that he's married. Um, but this scene, this little moment, uh, he he basically falls in love with Margaret at first sight, because why not? Um, and he starts to tell us, the audience, all about his feelings for her, right in front of her, and then she starts to talk to us about how he's ignoring her and talking to the audience instead. And it's really brilliant. Um, so first, I just want us to read it together. Um, Jess, do you care if you read Margaret or Suffolk, one or the other? I don't care. Um, I I will I will be whoever you want me to be. Although uh, Suffolk gets to say paramour, which is a super fun word. I do love the word paramour. Um, I you you're you're calling the shots here. You tell me what cool. you're reading. Cool. I I would like to read Suffolk if Great. that's all right with you. Ugh, I love to um, flirt with you. We should do yeah. this more often. Um, if we could start with Margaret's line, say Earl of Suffolk, and we'll go to quid quid for quo. So folks, just listen carefully to this, because I want you to note a shift from second person pronouns to third person pronouns, and that will be important in a minute. Say, Earl of Suffolk, if thy name be so, what ransom must I pay before I pass? For I perceive I am thy prisoner. How canst thou tell she will deny thy suit before thou make a trial of her love? Why speaks thou not? What ransom must I pay? She's beautiful, and therefore to be wooed. She's a woman, therefore to be won. Wilt thou accept of ransom, yea or no? Fond man, remember that thou hast a wife. Then how can Margaret be thy paramour? Ugh, I were best to leave him, for he will not hear. There all is marred, there lies a cooling card. He talks at random. Sure the man is mad. And yet a dispensation may be had. And yet I would that you would answer me. I'll win this lady, Margaret. For whom? Why, for my king. 
Josh, that's a wooden thing. He talks of wood. It is some carpenter. Yet so my fancy may be satisfied and peace established between these realms. But there remains a scruple in that too, for though her father be the king of Naples, Duke of Anjou, and Maine, yet he is poor, and our nobility will scorn the match. Hear ye, captain? Are you not at leisure? It shall be so. Disdain they ne'er so much. Henry is youthful and will quickly yield. Madam, I have a secret to reveal. What though I be enthralled? He seems a knight and will not anyway dishonor me. Lady, vouchsafe to listen what I say? Perhaps I shall be rescued by the French, and then I need not crave his courtesy. Sweet madam, give me hearing in a cause. Tush, women have been captivated ere now. Lady, wherefore talk you so? I cry you mercy, tis but quid for quo. And a scene. That was some brilliant acting. Uh, you're welcome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, <laughs> so, I also have a degree in performance. I don't use it, but I have it. Well, it's clear. Okay. So anyway, in, in the snippet uh, in, of this exchange between Suffolk and Margaret that Jess and I just read for you beautifully, um, usually I would say, hey, folks, here's, here's an opportunity to play this thing to the audience if you want to, it's there. But really, in this instance, you kind of don't have a choice. Um, there is no one else on stage right now except the two of them. And they switch from first to second to third person pronouns. And it I mean, that's a pretty clear indication that they're not speaking to one another or like they're alternating when they speak to one another. Right. Um, we hear both. Margaret and Suffolk at moments being like, um, hello, are you listening to me? I'm saying something important. Um, and at the same time, they're like, oh my God, I hope he likes me. Oh my God, what if I could make her my mistress? Right? So like, you have to, you have to talk to somebody. You have to talk to the audience. I would say, this is where I will say, this is your opportunity, not just to gloss over a sea of faces and do a wash, into the darkness. It really doesn't matter if you have lights on or lights off in your particular venue. Do yourselves a favor and pick people in the audience to talk to, right? If you're playing Suffolk or playing Margaret, confide in somebody, right? Um, it it sounds counterintuitive to say that it makes the moment more intimate, but it actually does. Uh, it draws everybody in. It makes everybody lean in. Everyone in the room, not just the actors on stage, it makes the moment intimate and funny and real. And I think that's important because it's the only time we get to see Margaret as kind of a person and not the battle-hardened queen that she's going to be, right? I mean, she's still pretty haughty, right? You can kind of get that attitude in, in her words there. But, like, um, she she becomes so much more like the she-wolf of France later. And this is when we get to see her more as just a, a woman before all of that stuff happens to her. Um, and we also get to see a little bit, I guess, what Margaret sees in Suffolk, even though Suffolk is kind of showing his ass uh, and telling us that he's for sure going to cheat on his wife come hell or high water with Margaret um, and make her his mistress or get a dispensation to divorce his wife and marry Margaret himself and, like, take her from the king. Like, he's not... He's not the best guy, I'm, I'm going to say. So, so I don't know, You this, this is just a moment that I love in this play. I think it's really indicative of Shakespeare's talent, or perhaps Marlowe's, who can say who wrote this part, but um, talent for, for one, really fun back and forth, like stick of mythia type of writing, but also 
the meta theatrical awareness that these two actors saying these parts, there's definitely a joke living here of like, hello, why doesn't he hear me? And like, they're hearing each other. And she's like, Margaret hears a little bit of what Suffolk is saying to, to the audience because she's like, oh, is he talking about wood? Is he a carpenter? Like, she's definitely commenting on that. So like, they're hearing snippets of it. It's not a full aside where... Uh, the other actor on stage is is completely deaf to what's being said, right? So there's a little, there's some overlap. There's some wonderful meta theatricality here, um, and it it opens up all kinds of fun nuances in staging. So take that and run with it, children. Be free. Talk to the fucking audience. Talk to them, not at them. Talk to talk to them. Do it. And that's that's my thing. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Because you took all my Joan thoughts, which is fine. <laughs> I just have so many. I just I, love I, Joan. I love this play. I love the whole play, frankly. I even love the geopolitical bits, which I hate in every other history play. <laughs> I love this whole play. Um, but also, like, Joan is so good. She Come is. on. Come on. Even when, even when our Protestant authors have written her as a demon summoning hooer. Yep. Um, yeah. should we, She's pretty great. Should we keep up with the Queen's men? What is the play and what is my part? Uh, okay, so keeping up the Queen's Men, again, we're checking in on the Queen's Men every time we do an episode. Um, and then towards the end of winter slash early spring, we will throw up all of these for you guys to vote on. And then we'll do like a full uh, 101 episode uh, as our season finale. Um, so this week we are talking about The Old Wife's Tale, which... Just, like, strap in, because... I'm ready. I'm ready. It was probably written by George Peel, probably in 1592. Uh, It was printed in 1594, so really, really quick after uh, writing, as opposed to some of the other plays that we have seen that have been, like, 20 years before they got printed. Anyway, so here's the plot of this play. Three pages are lost in the woods, and they encounter Clunch... The Smith. Clunch. Clunch is his name. Awesome. Uh, And they accept the hospitality of his cottage. One of them goes to bed with him while his wife, Madge, tells the other two uh, like a bedtime story. And here's the story. (laughs) Delia, who's the daughter of the king of Thessaly, has been abducted by the sorcerer Sacrapant, who can only (laughs) be killed by a dead man and whose power depends on a light in a glass, which can only be broken by a woman who is neither wife, widow, nor maid. Delia's two brothers come to England in search of her and they meet Arrestus. They give him alms and he prophesies to them. He too is a victim of Sacrapant, who has transformed him into an old man by day and a bear by night. Yes. And they have driven his betrothed lady, Vanilia, out of her mind. The brothers enter Sacrapant's domain, but they are imprisoned by furies and set to work digging for gold. Delia, who has forgotten her identity under the influence of a potion, is appointed as their overseer. Amnesia too? I love this. Others are also searching for Delia. One is the wandering knight Eumenides. Another is the braggart... Juanabango. <laughs> That's his name. Juanabango. 
Um, Eumenides gives generous alms to Arrestus the beggar, but Juanabango refuses. Oh Eumenides then happens upon a fight between a guy named Wigan and the parish officials who are refusing to bury Wigan's dead brother, Jack. Eumenides resolves the dispute by giving all of his remaining money to pay for the funeral. Juanabango attempts to force his way into Sacrapant's cell and is ejected by the Furies. Sacrapant strikes him deaf and also strikes Coribus blind. I forget who Coribus is. He's not mentioned before now. <laughs> but maybe he's like another brother. I don't know. Please never stop saying Juanabango. Okay. Also, there's this guy, Lampriscus, and he has two daughters, and one is ugly in face, and the other is ugly in personality. Arrestus, awesome. the beggar, advises that they should fetch water from the well of life and find their fortune there. So Xantippa, who's the mean one, maltreats the well's spirit, which is just a head. <laughs> and then she finds the unconscious, newly deaf Juanabango lying beside it. So her future husband will be unable to hear her shrewish words. Salanta, who's the ugly in face one, becomes blind Coribus's wife. Oh my god. She treats the head in the well nicely and is rewarded with corn and also gold. Uh, the despairing Eumenides meets the dead brother Jack. Remember the dead brother Jack? Uh, sure, yeah. They meet and accepts him as a companion. Uh, at a tavern, Eumenides will not eat because he cannot pay, but then he finds his purse miraculously full of money. He vows to give Jack a half share in everything he gets on his travels. Jack protects Eumenides from Sacrapant's magic by stopping his ears and then invisibly takes the enchanter's sword and garland. Sacrapant falls dead. Eumenides digs up the glasslight, but he's unable to break it. That falls to Vanilia, who being betrothed but unwed, is neither maid nor wife, and so fulfills the conditions. The spells are broken. Delia accepts Eumenides as her husband. Jack claims his half share in her. Eumenides is supposed to, like, cut her in two, but then Jack accepts the intention rather than the deed as proof of his constancy, and oh, reveals wow. himself as the grateful ghost of Wigan's dead brother. <laughs> the brothers and their lovers return to Thessaly. The tale is at an end. Just before daybreak, Madge wakes up and offers the pages some breakfast. The end. What an amazing framing device. Right? This play is a winner. How has it been lost to time? Also, in some versions of the text, there's a clown named Booby. Yes! And in other news, I want to see this play immediately. This play sounds so much better than Night of a Burning Pestle. Like, so much better. Wow. Yeah. So even if this is not the play that our listeners vote for, Four, I think we might have to do a 101 on this. This would make an amazing Ren show. <laughs> what a mango! Oh my god. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah. Should we gossip? Yes. Okay, so yep. like usually on 201 episodes, right, we'll give you a list of like, here's where you can see the play upcoming this year. But uh spoiler alert, it's a fucking pandemic. You can't see it. Oh, yeah. Um, but here here are some uh online productions that you can yeah. get. Here's some ways to to watch. Um, there's a 1983 version of the play available to stream on Amazon, and it's automatically the best one because it is the year of my birth. Yeah, girl. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you can also watch the show must go online Zoom version from April uh, oh, on yeah. YouTube. We'll throw a, a link up to that. Yes, for sure. Um, if you or your local library subscribes to Digital Theater Plus, you can also watch a production on there. And the 2013 Globe version is available to rent on the Globe Player. I do not know how the Globe Player works in the States. I don't know if it works in the States. So if you're in the States and you want to see that production, you might not be able to, but it's there. Um, What else have we got? So I don't remember (laughs) if we actually talked about this on an episode ever because summer and 2020 and what is time uh but for a while and maybe still but i think just for a while for the summer the folger had put up on youtube their 2008 production of macbeth oh yes um that was co-directed by aaron posner and teller of pen and teller fame right they have now the folger has put up a behind the scenes video of that on YouTube, we'll throw that link up. It's short. It's like eight minutes and you can you can watch. Um, also, just this week, just Friday, just three days ago, was a roundtable uh, called We Acknowledge Ours. Uh, so December of this year marks the 25th anniversary of the publication of Kim F. Hall's foundational contribution to the field of pre-modern critical race studies, Things of Darkness. You have heard us talk about this book. It's literally sitting on my desk right now. It's so good. Um, so it's it's a book that remains vibrant and necessary reading in this yeah. field. Leading up to this anniversary, uh, some scholars have put together a panel that celebrates and considers the legacy Professor Hall's pathbreaking work has had on early modern studies, academia, and the world. Without Professor Hall's myriad contributions to literary studies and historiography, a great deal of research currently being produced by exciting new voices in the field would not be possible. Because of her significant academic insight, brilliance, generosity, and mentorship, early modern studies is a more open, welcoming, and collaborative place to be. This panel brings together scholars to discuss Professor Hall's influence on their work. It will show how Professor Hall's research has become a necessary anchor in many areas for early modern studies, including adaptation and appropriation studies, the history of race, literary history, queer studies, trans studies, women's studies, book history, theater history, food studies, prosody, and attribution studies, just to name a few. Damn right. Yeah. So this roundtable happened uh, on Friday. It was recorded. We will throw uh, a link up for you to watch it. I have not yet watched it because I had it on my schedule that it was next Friday and I missed it live. So I have to go watch the, the re-record. Anyway, I'm going to. Um, and I'm really fucking excited. It uh, The roundtable is chaired by Dr. Brandy Adams, uh, who is at MIT. Um, and then it also included Vanessa Corradera, Miles Greer, uh, Mira Kafantaris, and Deborah Priya Sarkar. A, just, I mean, a collection of huge, incredible wonderful scholars both established and early career um so check it the fuck out yeah is that it is that really all we've got you have no gossip i don't it's because i've been on a media blackout i was doing some some self-preservation because of the election and like trying to take care of my mental state and i just yeah that's fine uh, blacked out. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for listening, y'all. We hope that you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah. Uh, tune in next time when we uh, go even narrower and even deeper into King Lear 301. Woo. Lear. Yeah. Yeah. Wham it out. Joe Biden's America. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, 
please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I record the Muskegee Creek Nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as Stanton, Virginia, the Monacan and Manahoac nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Also, just like, it's just fun to say. I mean, you know how the French are. They have like 14 letters and they pronounce two of them. So it's true. Um, sorry to any they brought this on themselves (laughs) I'm not actually this xenophobic I promise